invite you tonight to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews. We've preached a lot out of the book of Hebrews, and but we've never really started at the beginning. <laughs> and so tonight we're going to look at the first three verses of the book of Hebrews. Now Hebrews is a unique book. Some Bibles that you uh, have will say the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. It doesn't say that. And in fact, no one really knows for sure except God himself who the human author was. Although nameless, this fact does not distract from the authenticity or inspired authority of its contents. That was written by Robert Grumecki, who wrote a book called New Testament Survey that I used when I taught at uh, Trinity Baptist Bible Institute to teach New Testament Survey. But Christ is better than the prophets, or superior to the prophets. And that's what he deals with in these first three verses. Let's read it together. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath anointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's pray. Father, we ask tonight as we look into this passage of Scripture, the Scripture itself honors the Lord Jesus. And I pray that as we speak tonight, we too may honor Jesus. And may we really look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Bless us in our time together tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This epistle begins in the same manner as both Genesis and the Gospel of John. All three of these books state the fact of God's existence, but not one of them undertakes the task of proving his existence. There's the emphasis here on what he did, rather than the fact that he is. In Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. God is just assumed to be there and to have done this. In John 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. Notice it's capitalized. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God is in existence, right? He's always been. He always will be. And this is the way this book starts off. Christ is a better revelation. 
He's a better revelation than anything from the prophets. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. The revelation through Jesus Christ is better than the revelation of the Old Testament. And by revelation, I simply mean the process by which God has made himself known. In our verses, verses 1 and beginning with verse 2, the beginning of verse 2, we see God twice identified as speaking. First, he was speaking to the fathers by the prophets. Secondly, to us by Christ, his son. Do you realize that without his speaking, we would know absolutely nothing of him? He spoke creation in existence. God spoke to Adam, to Eve, to Abraham. He spoke to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, Joshua, to Samuel. He spoke to the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and many, many more. How many times do they say, thus saith the Lord? This is their cry. God is speaking to you, and here is what he's saying. Thankfully, our God is a speaking God. He speaks to us. He tells us what he's like. He tells us what he has done. He tells us what we are to believe. He tells us how we are to behave. And when we have trouble obeying, God reminds us of what he's done. And for this, you and I need to be thankful. Let's see the contrast between God speaking through the prophets and then speaking through his son. First of all, we see when he spoke. When he spoke in time past, long ago, the days of the Old Testament from creation to the coming of Christ. But these last days, he says, the days of the Messiah from Christ until now. To whom he spoke? He spoke to the fathers, but he also spoke to us. Now, we are not more important than the fathers, but it's more important to us because we're the ones being addressed, right? How did he speak? Well, the scripture says at sundry times and in diverse manners. Now, don't get lost in those phrases there sundry times this simply means different times he gave his revelation to different men in fact to more than 30 writers for the 39 Old Testament books the books are all different some are history some are law some are poetry some are prophecy some are wisdom he spoke in different times. 
But then he also spoke in divers manners. This means different ways. He sometimes spoke audibly. Sometimes he spoke to his prophets in dreams or visions or had angels speak in his behalf. He spoke at events. Sometimes he spoke loudly and sometimes he spoke with a still, small voice. No prophet, let me remind you, had complete revelation. They only had partial revelation. But he spoke not only at sundry times in a diver's manners, but he also spoke to us by his son. Notice, it hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. There's a finality about the revelation of Jesus that wasn't true in Old Testament times. He, Jesus, is the revelation of God. You and I don't need to look for new revelations or new experiences. He is sufficient through whom did he speak well he spoke by the prophets they were just mere men some have compared this to text writing today emails letters phone calls but now he has spoken to us in these last days by his son. He spoke to us personally, in person. If you'll hold your place here in Hebrews, we'll come back to that in a minute. But look back with me to the Gospel of John, John chapter 4 and verse 25. John 4, 25. This is where the woman was speaking to Jesus at the well. And she said unto him, verse 25, I know that Messiah comes, which is called Christ. When he has come, he will tell us all things. And notice Jesus' response. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee, Am he? What's he saying? He's saying, the Messiah you've been looking for, you're looking right at him. He's the one that's talking to you. And then in Revelation chapter 22, the last chapter, we see some warning that's given here. Verse 18, and John the apostle, as he's writing, he says this, for I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away of the book of this prophecy, God shall take his, away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. God's word to us through his son, was better than that was given by the prophets. 
notice in the rest of verse 2 and in verse 3, he says this, speaking about Christ being the better person. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Gerald Stover, writing many, many years ago, said that the writer of Hebrews states seven facts in these two verses here concerning Jesus Christ. But notice what he said. He said that any one of them, any one of them would be sufficient to demonstrate that the founder of Christianity was greater than the prophets, the human messengers of the law. What's Mr. Stover saying? He's saying any one of these seven things that are listed here in the latter part of verse 2 and in verse 3, any one of them would be sufficient to prove that Jesus was better or superior to the prophets. But there's seven, seven of them, seven. And we're going to go through those one by one, and I hope it will be a, a blessing to you uh, as it has always been to me as I've read this passage of Scripture. The first thing is his heirship. H-E-I-R, ship, heirship. Whom he hath anointed, appointed heir of all things. The implication of Jesus being the son. Moses was a servant. Christ was the son. In verse 5 of chapter 3 of Hebrews, it says, And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. All things were made for him and by him, right? According to Colossians 1.16. And then Psalm 89, Psalm 89 and verse 27. Psalm 89, 27. Also I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. One interesting thing about the scripture is it reveals to us that in Roman times, and we look to this in Revelation chapter 5, when a will was written in Roman times, it had to be sealed seven times. It had to be sealed seven times. And we look in Revelation chapter 5, 
And verse 1 says, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book, or a will, really, written, and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And John wept because there was no man found to open it. But then in verse 5 it says, And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. John, don't worry. The lion of the tribe of, of Judah has prevailed and he will open the book. He'll loose the seals, if you will. And then notice verse 6, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, in the midst of the elders, stood not the lion of the tribe of Judah, but a lamb. Jesus, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And notice in verse 9, the response. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. Jesus, you're worthy. You're worthy. And what's interesting is then in chapter 6, you see six of the seven seals open. Notice verse 1. The lamb opened one of the seals. Verse 3 talks about the second seal. Verse 5, the third seal. Verse 7, the fourth seal. Verse 9, the fifth seal. Verse 12, the sixth seal. And then finally, in Revelation chapter 11, we see the seventh seal being broken. And in verse 15, it says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. His heirship. But then the scripture talks more and talks about his creator ship by whom also he made the worlds now most of us that have been a christian for a while know that the normal word for worlds in greek is cosmos k o s m o s transliterated but interesting that's not the word that's used here by whom he made the world. That's not the same word. The word here is transliterated I-O-N-U-S. And it doesn't mean the material. It means the ages. He's not saying, John MacArthur said, he's not saying that 
Jesus Christ is only responsible for the physical earth, he's saying Jesus, or Jesus Christ is responsible for creating the very concepts of time, space, force, action, and matter. Christ is responsible for creating the whole universe of time and space. He doesn't use the word cosmos. That would restrict it just to the earth. But he makes Christ the creator of the universe, of the ages, of all concepts and bounds of existence. Wow. That's a blessing. Amen. Look with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6. But to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Notice, by whom are all things. And then over in, in uh, Romans chapter 11 and verse 36, Romans chapter 11 and verse 36 for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever amen his creatorship A.K. Morrison brilliant scientist, tells us that the conditions for life on the planet Earth and the universe demand so many billions of minute involved circumstances that must appear absolutely simultaneously in the same infinitesimal moment for any kind of life to appear that becomes beyond belief and beyond possibility. Consider the vastness of the universe that was zapped one day into existence from nothing. Right? Who did that? Christ did. Christ did. Uh, John MacArthur says you could bore a hole in the sun. It'd take a big drill to do it. But you could pour 1,200,000 earths and still have room for 4,300,000 moons just to lie around the edge. And I could give you some other things that he said, but I'll move further on and say, we've gotten that far when we think about the universe, and you think about the earth, uh, and he ends up by saying, and we've gotten that far, We've just made the first step off the front porch because we haven't even gotten out of our tiny, little, infinitesimal solar system, which moves in a multi-million mile orbit through endless space. Wow. Jesus did that. And then 
it goes on in verse 3, and the first part talks about his brightness, Jesus' brightness, who bring, being the brightness of his glory, the radiance of his glory, glowing, shining of his glory. The moon reflects light, but the sun radiates light but it's its source. Jesus doesn't simply reflect God's glory. He's part of it. When we look at the transfiguration of Christ, we see a couple places that one in Mark chapter 9 and verse 3 Speaking about Jesus, uh, and his raiment became shiny, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And then over in Matthew chapter 17, Matthew 17 and verse 2, talks about Jesus, and it says, And he was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. Now, we'll not turn there, but in Acts, when Jesus appeared on the Damascus road to, the, to Paul, to Saul as he was called then, you remember what happened? A bright light appeared, right? And Saul was taken down. And when he asked and inquired who was doing this to him, what was the response? I am Jesus. Light. Jesus being the light. That light that blinded Saul on the Damascus Road was Jesus. He's the brightness of God's glory. Amen. But then he's also his express image. The express image of his person. He's the exact representation of God's essence. He is the very nature of God. And by the way, this is a very, very strong statement regarding the deity of Christ. He's a precise copy, an exact image, a representor, a reproduction. To turn away from him is to turn away from God. When you see him, you see the Father. But let me remind you, he is also a distinct person. Back in John chapter 1 and verse number 1, if you remember, in the beginning was the Word, 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 3, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Unless we miscalculate, can't figure out what this word, this capitalized word, is, verse 14, the scripture itself explains it. And the word, again capitalized, was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Not only is he, that's this, that express image, but notice his sustaining or his administration. The next phrase says, and upholding all things by the word of his power. That means to support or maintain. It's the present tense and continuous uh, action. One said this, no scientist or mathematician, no astronomer or nuclear physicist could do anything without the upholding power of Jesus Christ. If the laws of science varied, we would have a mess unbelievable. We couldn't exist. That which you would eat could turn to poison. You couldn't stay on the earth. We'd fall off uh, periodically. We'd get drowned by the ocean periodically. Tremendous things would happen. The whole universe hangs on the arm of Jesus. His unsearchable wisdom and boundless power are manifested in governing the universe. And he does it by the word of his power, without effort. The key to the creation in Genesis, two words, God said. All the way through Genesis, God said, and it did, and it happened. Think about this. Consider the example, if the earth's rotation slowed down just a little bit, we would alternately freeze and burn. The sun has a surface temperature of 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. If it were any closer or farther, we would ultimately freeze or burn. Our globe is tilted at an exact angle of 23 degrees, which enables us to have four seasons. If it weren't tilted like that, the vapors from the ocean would move north and south and pile up monstrous uh, continents of ice. If the moon didn't remain at exact distance from the earth, the ocean tide will undate the land completely twice a day. And after the first one, we wouldn't care, we wouldn't care about the second one, right? Uh, if the ocean floor is merely slipping to a few feet deeper than it is, carbon dioxide and oxygen in the Earth's atmosphere would be completely absorbed and no vegetable life would exist on Earth. If the atmosphere didn't remain constant, but thinned out and didn't remain in the same consistency, many of the meteors 
which are now harmlessly burned up when they hit our atmosphere, would constantly bombard us and we all have to live underground. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 talks about he's upholding. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Just one of these, remember what Mr. Stover said? Just one of these things so far exceeds what the prophets did. But there's seven of them. The sixth one is his sacrifice. When he had by himself purged our sins. I'm so glad. I hope you are. That he paid for our sins with his own blood. His redemptive work on the cross secured eternal salvation for those who trust him. Hebrews Chapter 7 and verse 27. Hebrews 7, 27. Who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's, for this he did once when he offered up himself. Christ did that. And then in chapter 9 and verse 12, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And then in verse 26 of the same chapter, chapter 9, For then must he have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then over in 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1 and verse number 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all Sin, not 90% of it, but all sin. His sacrifice. He did it himself. He died for you. Praise the Lord, he died for me. Amen? And then the last thing we see here, how Christ is superior to the prophets, is when he had by himself purged our sins, then what did he do? He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat on the cross. It is finished. Right? 
in John 19, verse 30. It is finished. What's finished? The plan of salvation is finished. It's accomplished. I'm dying for the sins of all mankind. It's accomplished. And he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. There's four things that this sitting down means. It literally means he was exalted. It was a sign of honor to sit. And in Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 11, this great passage where everybody's going to bow down before Jesus, right? Verse 11 says, And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This was a sign, him sitting down was a sign of honor to sit down on the right hand of the Father. It was also a sign of rule in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 22. The scripture says, in talking about Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and powers being made subject unto him. And then in Hebrews, not only a sign of honor and a sign of rule, but Hebrews chapter 10 points out that he sat down to rest. He sat down to rest in verses 12 and 13 of Hebrews 10. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, and every priest standeth daily ministering and offering betimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Verse 12, but this man, talk about Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, what did he do? He sat down on the right hand of God. From henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. The work was done. When we go back to the Old Testament, we look at God's plan for the ages, and we see the development of the temple and the holy place and the holy of holies, right? There were no seats in the holy of holies. Nobody sat down. The work wasn't complete. But when Jesus made his sacrifice, he sat down. And what did he sit down to do? Indicates he sat down to rest. But I don't think he's getting much rest. And I'll tell you why. Look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 34. Romans 8, verse 34. 
who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, now notice the next phrase, who also maketh intercession for us. I don't know about you, but I, I realize that Christ has to make a lot of intercession for me. I'm certainly not what I need to be, what I want to be. And when I sin, Jesus reminds the Father, I died for him. He's one of mine. He's one of ours. And so he's making intercession for us. And back in verse 26 of the same chapter, likewise the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Not only is the Son making intercession for you and for me, but also the Holy Spirit that lives within us. He's making intercession for us as well. All I can say after reading these verses and looking at all these implications from these different phrases here is say to God be the glory. Great things he hath done. Christ is a better revelation and a better person than the prophets. I'm thankful for the prophets, but I'm more thankful for Jesus and what he did and what he's doing today in our behalf. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for your blessing. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for all that he's done for us and all that he continues to do for us. I thank you for his intercession on my behalf. Thank you, Lord, for all you have done. Great things you have done, and we bless your name for it. Lord, I pray that you would help us this week as we contemplate and think back about this message and what the scripture says. May we love you more. May we cherish your name more. May we witness more. And Lord, just bless us as we attempt to live for you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.